0: One of the joys, I think, of the last seven or eight years for Rachel and me has been living after many years away, at least closer to our Baraka family. So it brings us a lot of pleasure whenever we're able to be with you and the different ways in which we partner in ministry as well. So thank you. Thank you for that ministry, that your prayer. You're coming alongside of us in a lot of our types of ministries. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a Dutch Dutch sociology, sociologist by the name of Geert Hofstede. Now, if you've got a name like Geert Hofstede, this study he did has got to be good. So IBM hired him to do a study of IBM around the world, and he did a survey of 50 different nations, 50,000 employees. And his study was to determine the difference between countries that tend to be more individualistic and independent oriented versus countries that tend to be more collectivistic or cultures. And those two categories kind of relate to the way in which we integrate into and our loyalty to groups versus loyalty to ourselves. So it's kind of like I-cultures and we-cultures. And one of the things he determined, which probably won't surprise you, is that Americans are the most independent-oriented or individualistic-oriented population in the world, specifically white Americans. Now, going beyond that study, uh, just kind of a little bit of study of my own, even more so individualistic or white evangelicals. And the reason for that, I've done some reading on that, is that we consistently tend to read the Bible through individualistic eyes, me and God type of perspective, especially the epistles of Paul and sanctification. And we, we think of it in terms of I need to grow. I need to become more like Christ. And the emphasis being there rather than, and, and, and so the, the collective piece of the Christian life tends to be kind of an add-on, kind of an additional thing instead of part of the necessary air that we breathe, that we're incomplete as individuals. White evangelicals in the United States, I can go a step further than that and say white evangelicals who are men are even more individualistic because it's part of our ideal who we are or think of ourselves self-controlled and cool and collected and kind of self-sufficient and brave and enamored either with James Bond or Jason Bourne, depending on how old you are. But let me go a step further and say, even among white evangelical men in the United States, even more individualistic are those men who are 50 years old and older. Probably the most individualistic oriented and have this ideal of the, the individual, the man who can conquer the world, is part of the vision of who we are. We're still in love with that picture of that rugged that that man who needs no one ultimately. And kind of above the emotionalism of the weaker sex. And the man who sits astride his horse or his truck or his Harley and takes off into the sun silhouetted an icon solo. And I see that deeply in me. I'm older than 50. I think many of you know. By the way, who who qualifies for that? White evangelical men older than 50. Okay. This is for everybody, but especially for us, all right? I see this deeply in me. I spent, I was saved at age 15 and just a few months later than that started coming to Baraka. And I spent the first six to seven years of my Christian life in a sense alone. And I didn't even realize it. I was part of a family who were not Christian, going to schools, high school and college that was not Christian. And come into a, a church, at least initially, that was so small there wasn't any youth group. There was no, no one else there basically my age. And so I spent a lot of time, God gave me this passion for his word, and I spent a lot of time just me and God type of thing and growing and not really realizing in a sense what I was missing at that point. So I spent hours in my upstairs bedroom, I remember, uh, reading and doing my studies for school, listening to a lot of music, reading the Bible, praying, and I was kind of content with that. In fact, you know those call-in radio contests, the third caller and you win? I won a lot of those because I was sitting up there listening to the radio while I was studying. So all told, what I'm trying to say is I think I'm ridiculously unqualified to preach the sermon that I'm about to preach, because this sermon is all about encouraging one another and comforting and being involved in the lives of one another, because biblical encouragement and community is basically it's a collective exercise. It's something that we do and must do, Together, So let's ask ourselves a couple of questions that we, as we go through. And the first question will be, what is God's calling for us in our relationships with other believers? So I want you to turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to look at two passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. What is God's calling for us, all of us, not just old white guys, for all of us in our relationships with other believers? And so in Hebrews chapter 10, The writer, uh, starting in about verse 19, he had started making a transition from sort of a doctrinal section more into an emphasis on our spiritual growth. And he gives a couple of, let us do this, let us do that. And then finally in verse 24, so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, he comes, he turns to the corporate nature of spiritual growth and sanctification. So let me just read these couple of verses that are quite familiar Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Spiritual growth is a group activity. It's, it's, it's not an individual sport. It's, we might compare it more with tennis and golf, and we ought to compare it more with basketball and football and soccer. It's something God's designed for us to do together. And so we... Coming most of us from a more individualistic perspective of life, we really need to focus, and this includes me, and I'll share some ways how we need to focus on that corporate nature of sanctification. And that starts with understanding. Okay, we're going to go through this passage. Uh, K. Arthur fans, you're really going to love this morning. We're going to do some word by word. If you got your colored markers, you can do all kinds of stuff. We're really going to go through these few verses. So, he starts out in verse 24 talking about our understanding of each other. And, and just, we're going to do a little bit more word study this morning. Let us, I'm sorry, let us consider, consider. Let's consider the word consider. It's the idea of consider is to look, but to look at something in studying it. It's an observation where you take some time to figure something out. You scrutinize something. You give some attention, not just a quick look or a casual observation made in passing, but it's an intentional inspection, trying to learn, in this case, about other people. It's used in Acts seven of Moses where uh, Stephen says, when Moses saw this, when he saw the burning bush from afar, when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. So he he first saw it from afar, but then he went over to figure this burning bush out, to understand what was going on here, try to, to know it better. The idea, as the dictionary says, is to give proper and decisive thought about something. Okay, so what is he saying we should give proper and decisive thought to and, and, and figure out? So he says, let us consider how to stir up. Now, here's a place where I'm going to, to work through the translation here because this is not the best translation, although it makes sense why they did that. If you remember your grammar, the word, words one another is actually the object, the direct object of observe. So King James Version is one of the ones that gets this right when it says, consider one another to provoke to love and good deeds. So the object of our scrutiny, of our considering, is other believers, other people. Consider each other to figure out how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let's consider, observe, understand each other to spur others on. So he's calling us to spend time thinking about fellow believers who are in our lives. Spend time studying, in a sense, for the purpose of knowing how to encourage them better. It's going be especially involved with those who are kind of in our closer circle, the deeper study. We can't, we can't have this level of relationship with 100 people. So that group around you, friends and family, believers that God's put into your life to spend time thinking about them, that I can encourage them better, that I can spur them on even more effectively. First Thessalonians 5.14 says it this way. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The idea is you've studied these people well enough to know, does this person go in the category of the idle or the weak or the faint-hearted or the discouraged or the encouraged or whatever? It implies that we know people well enough to encourage them according to who they are in the way that works best for them. We don't encourage everyone the same way. We're considering one another to figure out what would be most encouraging to that brother or that sister in their own spiritual life. Some people we need to, uh, to approach very gently, very softly, maybe indirectly. Other people we can jump right in and say what we're thinking uh, directly. And so it implies we know people well enough to know how they appreciate being encouraged. And then he goes on. We're considering one another how to stir up or how to stimulate. This word also, it's, a, it's a, a strong word, the idea of spurring or inciting. Or the dictionary says stimulating a change in motivation or attitude. So I'm thinking about you to figure out how best to push you, to spur you on to love and good deeds. It's stoking the fire. The verb form of this used, word is used by Paul in Acts, I mean of Paul in Acts, when he's walking through the, the um, market of Athens and he sees all these different idols and it says that his, his spirit was provoked within him and it provoked him to action. It provoked him to preach a message. And so this is provoking or stimulating or encourage others leading to their changing their lives. To their, a different form of action, helping them and change attitudes and heart uh, motivations in order that their good works, their actions as well might be changed. Stoking that fire in a brother or sister toward loving others well and doing good deeds. We know the fire is in there because the Holy Spirit's in there if that person's a believer. But sometimes that fire can be tamped down and a little bit cooled off, and we need to stoke it. We need to add flame to it. We need to figure out how to encourage this brother, get back to serving or continue serving the Lord in the way you have. And so this journey for me, very individualistic, the early part of my Christian life, me and God. And there were individuals, men in Baraka, uh, Dan Lee, Nelson Wallace, Cecil Gilreath, Howard, and Beth, that did speak in. But it really wasn't until I left uh, Georgia and went to um, graduate school, seminary, in northern Indiana that I experienced this encouragement in a deeper way. And God was pulling me or trying to pull me out of myself. So I moved in with a family. I think I've probably shared this before, but I moved in with a family, a couple uh, probably seven, eight years older than me, and they had a couple of kids. And as I lived there, I had a bedroom, did my studies, uh, something might happen in the family. We have a little bit of an argument or whatever. So what I did would do is I would immediately get up, walk into my room, close the door, and sit down and study my Bible or study my studies for, for seminary because that's the way we did it in our family. In our family, if we had a, a fight with one another, we just kind of all went to our separate rooms or quarters, and then when we came back together, it was like, okay, let's forget about that. And I thought, wow, that was pretty good the way we do this. We just separate from each other, not realizing that that's not a healthy way at all of of resolving difficulties. So when I would walk into my room and sit down, the man of the house would walk right behind me and come right in the door with me and sit on my bed and look at me. And he, he was someone who had been disciple, saved and disciple, in the navigators in the military. So it was all about the one and others. So he would sit there, he'd take his glasses off, he had big eyes, and he would basically gently sit there with me and start talking. This is not the way the Christian life works. You don't run from problems. You talk about problems. And I remember the first several times, like, I don't like this. I never experienced this, this corporate side of sanctification. And he would stay there until I finally started seeing. So that year was a time of great growth. I got married the next year. So I think Rachel's probably glad that I had that year of growth before we got married. But continued to be that way, even in our marriage. So... The writer here talks about being involved in each other's lives, and he even takes this to a, a deeper level, stimulating each other to love, kind of the, the motivation of the Christian life, and to good deeds, the behavior of the Christian life. So be part of stimulating that in one another's life. And he even tells when to do it in verse 5, where he says, not neglecting to meet together. So that's, that's, that's related to verse 24, when we meet together. Be doing verse 24. Be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Be observing each other. Be thinking, praying for each other. How can I speak a word that would encourage that brother and sister this morning? And not just the big fellowship gathering or worship gathering, but any time we're together with believers. And, and perhaps you anticipate you're going to be spending some time with these believers this evening Okay, who's going to be there? Let me think about some things that are going on in their lives. What can I say? What can I ask? What can I do that would encourage that brother, that sister for where they are right now? So we should go into gatherings with believers with intentionality, even some forethought. Let us consider we're working with purpose uh, to try to, to, to even plan ahead how we can encourage each other. Sometimes, we come together, we're so full of ourselves and our agenda and I need to talk to this person and check this out and I need to ask this of this person and, and, and we're so busy about accomplishing our things that we miss this person right in front of us. We miss focusing on them and we become myopic and instead of loving and thinking about, no, what does this person need in their relationship with Christ right now? This needs to be part of what we do when we're together. For some people, It's natural. For other people like me, it's not. So it implies more planning, more forethought, more preparation. So we're trying to encourage people, recognizing that we have a critical part of helping other believers grow in Christ as they have a critical part in helping us as well. Encouragement. Or the New Testament also calls this Edification. Are building one another up into Christ's likeness, pleasing one another for our good, equipping one another, giving grace to one another. A lot of ways we share the same idea of this intentional planned encouragement of one another. So, again, as I said, for some people this is natural, but for others it's not. So I'm not naturally a, a people person. My idea of a nice evening is being at home with Rachel, maybe reading, maybe watching a movie, talking, hanging out. And on days off, you can often find me working on some uh, project around the house and going on a long bike ride by myself. <laughs> I'm still not a people person naturally, so often I need others to wake me up to that. And so we're part of a church now where the average age is 31. 31. And so most people in the church or the age of our kids are younger. And so in some ways, it's been kind of hard to find that peer-to-peer encouragement. But our church is also organized in what we call city groups. So they're geographical small groups. So we're part of a group of 10 or 12 that live right in a couple of neighborhoods together. Yes, they're all younger than us, but we've committed. We've been in that group for five years now. We helped start the group. There's another young African-American man, a banker, leads the group now, but it, the spirit has been developed there where we speak truth into each other's lives. And it's a key part of what we what we do. Um, we, it, within those city groups, we also have what we call discipleship groups. So that's two to three to four men, two to three to four women, really praying, spending time in the Word together, and holding each other accountable in deeper ways. God's put me, God's like, John, you have this individualistic bent, I'm going to put you in settings where you can't be that way, where you have to be pulled out by others and be part of pulling others out. Even, Even before, even when we... Uh, The first term when we went to the Philippines, so that was 1985, I remember that term, we became part of a team that over four years had five different nationalities and four different mission agencies in it. We were together planting a church and we were in this culture that was super, uh, super collectivistic. It was all about together. Their word for happy is basically the same word that means together because you, be, you can't be happy by yourself from their perspective. And I remember someone would come to the door. We didn't have telephones at first, or we didn't have telephones. So Pedro or whoever would come to the door and knock, and I remember the first few times I would let him in the door and stand there right, you know, in the little foyer or whatever, and, okay, so what do you need something? And Rachel didn't let me do that very long. Very insulting in that culture. You invite in, you, you give some snacks, and you don't ask them what they're there for. And so you wait, and conversation, and conversation, and one hour, and two hours, and I'm thinking of the list of, of real work i got to get done over here, right? And they're, they're distracting me from that. And then what often would happen after one, two hours, they would go, well, I guess I better go. Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you. And so that was the whole purpose of their visit, right there in the last second. And so you had to wait for that. You couldn't pull that out quickly. So God, again, forced has forced me, as it were, into a setting where it's all about the group, where it's about encouraging each other and being part of... God was schooling me. God was giving me practice in those one another's, in learning how to encourage. He finally uses the word encourage in verse 25, but encouraging one another. And he's probably partly talking about encouraging one another to get together, but also the broader idea of encouragement. Uh, This word... It's a common word, you may know it, parakaleo. It's the idea of coming alongside of someone else and encourage them. Put your arm around, talk to them about who they are, and and figure out how to stimulate them to further growth, strengthening someone. If the person's going in the right direction, it's just fanning the flame, saying, well done, keep that up. Strengthening others, comforting others, encouraging each other in this process of growth. So God ask us the question was what does God call us to in our relationship with other believers God asks us to be closely involved in the lives of other believers to help them grow but also to make sure there are others who are closely involved in our lives to help us grow you can ask yourself this tough question are there brothers and sisters who are greater lovers of God and greater lovers of people because of my encouragement in their lives But why is this so important? Why is this group thing, this encouragement so important? We sang a couple of songs that reminded us of this, but if you turned it back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 3, there are many different reasons this is important, but I want to focus particularly on one broad reason that the writer describes in Hebrews chapter 3. And and again, we're jumping right in. This is in a section right before he talks about... uh, where he's starting to talk about the Israelites entering their rest and and the Israelites in the wilderness and what kind of people they were. And so he says in verse uh, 3, 12, again, we're going to do some word for word here, but I'll read the verse first. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But... Exhort one another or encourage one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He starts that word right there, take care. Brothers, be sure and do this. That's what take care means. Make sure you're doing this. And then he's talking to brothers. So this description of sin's deceitfulness and turning away from God, that's in the context of believers. So the idea is all of us have the natural tendency to be walking away from God, to be falling into a sinful, unbelieving heart. It's critical that we're involved in each other's lives, encouraging each other's, because we still have hearts in which is resident an unbelief. It's still the natural pull not to believe God, to to fall rather into sin, the sin of unbelief. And so there are a lot of different things we don't believe that are true, or we at least are tempted not to believe. And at times we don't believe enjoying God is enough, so we seek joy elsewhere. Or at times we don't believe that we have been made good enough really to satisfy God, so we try to earn our goodness. We try to be good ourselves, earn His grace. Or at times we can fall into the, the unbelief that, God's grace is not enough to help me in these deep, long-term sinful patterns that I've had that I just can't shake. Or we don't believe that our present state in life, whether we're rich or poor or married or unmarried or young or old or a good job or a bad job or male or female or whatever, we can be tempted to think that this state of life can be, that, that it can be the source of greatest joy. Instead of God, we don't believe we're impressive enough to other people. So we try to slick ourselves up. We work at being more impressive. Just in the recent weeks, I've, I've realized even now at 60 years old, there are streaks of vanity that I still play with in thinking about my appearance or my clothes or whatever before others. Versions of unbelief. We don't believe at times that uh, time spent solely focused on God and his word and talking to him is as important as gobs of other stuff that fills our time. There's a lot of unbeliefs and lies that we can tend to fall back into. So we need to be pointing that out in each other's lives. Brother, what are you thinking right there? What's the belief behind what you're saying? And that sinful, unbelieving heart can be bad enough, as he says, that we turn away from, or here he says, leading you to fall away from the living God, to turn away, to apostatize, to distance ourselves from God because now we're believing this instead of truly believing God. Again, the context is the Israelites, and there they are in the wilderness, and there were a lot of lies they believed. And so in the one case where they said, God, we have to have meat or life's not worth living, they believed that God's plan for them to have manna was not the best plan. They believed life would be better if we had meat right now. Believe the lie. So we can believe those lies as well, and so pull away from God. Not pull away just from doctrines and and from different kinds of Beliefs but from the living God, turn away, be fall away from the living god who's God who 's alive with joy and, and vibrancy and love and justice and power, and who offers this ongoing fresh, new every morning relationship with him, and we don 't believe that 's enough at times, and we find substitutes, and he even goes more farther, he says toward the end of the verse that so we can be, uh, I'm sorry, toward the end of the second verse, we can have an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God at the end of verse 13. And he talks about that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we have that tendency too. Hardened by our own sin, deceived by our own sin. Sin blinds us to our own sinfulness. It's what we do. We justify our sinfulness. We lessen it. And so we can be distancing ourselves from God without realizing it because of what we're believing, because of how we're leaving, living. That's why it's usually a shock when someone comes to us and confronts us or rebukes us. It's, we, I can't believe I could have been guilty of that. No, that's not me. And so they surely they've misjudged. Surely they have their facts wrong. We didn't, we didn't do that exactly as you say it because we're being deceived by our own sinfulness. That's part of us. So if those characteristics of, are part of us, that we need others to slip in and point out our areas of blindness. Sin deceives us. I'm deceived by my own sin, and I need you to point it out. I need you to expose it. And so if I let you into my life, you often can see things about my life better than I can see them myself. It's not very rare in... 36 years of marriage that Rachel has come and said, John, can I talk to you about something? Well, I know what's coming when she says that now. Uh, 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 People sometimes think my wife is timid. (laughs) She's gentle. She's quiet. She is not timid. And so she has been part of what God has used to speak truth in my life when I'm being deceived. And even now when she comes, I'm like totally shocked. What? What did I do? No, I didn't mean that until I listen a little bit more and realize that she has some perspective that I don't have. So he says, in light of this sin, in light of this pulling away, in light of this being hardened by sin, there in the first part of verse 13, in, in ESV it's exhort, but it's the same word as encouraged in chapter 10, parakaleo, that we should encourage each other. We should point those areas of sin out. I need you to stir up my fire because my fire can fizzle pretty quickly we need each other and even to add to it did you notice how often we need that he said as long as it's called today every day in effect or daily as other translations have it we need one another this is not just a rare once a year somebody comes and confronts me or something like that it should be part of how we live our lives our christian lives that we're speaking truth sometimes painful truth into each other's lives. We're asking questions, sometimes difficult questions, of each other because of our proneness to pull away from God once again daily. Paul Tripp wrote in one of his books that the radical stance of the New Testament is that intervention is not limited to occasional moments of confrontation. Rather, it's a lifestyle, a commitment that shapes all our interactions as members of the body of Christ. It should be normal for us to be having conversations that are significant, whether it's confrontation and rebuke or encouraging to continue, brother, you're well done. You served God, you loved God well, you loved people well there. Both those forms of encouragement. So I, I want to say for you to think about if you don't have a few, at least a few loving people in your life to whom you've given permission to speak this way to you, you're in a dangerous position. You're vulnerable. You're seeking to live your life alone. And you're not accepting, you're not taking advantage of one of God's greatest resources, which is one another. Spiritual growth is a group sport. It's something we do together. And so, and, and, and even realize here, you remember when he said, um, unbelieving heart even encouraging each other at the heart level, not just behavior, although we need, to, we need to talk to one another about that, but also even getting far enough into the lives of others where we can speak, be speaking to them about heart motivations or idolatries or loves or desires, asking good questions that can lead to that, asking how can I pray for you, or asking how is life for you in the midst of the suffering that you're going through right now? How are you doing? Uh, what is your greatest challenge to spiritual growth right now in this phase of your life? or Where do you regularly experience problems in relationships? And on and on and on. And so we've thought about people. We've considered one another and realized this would be a good question to ask that brother. Because I know this has been going on in his life. Or his tendency is this. Or his, her personality is this. So it's, it's, it's a deep Involvement, at least, like I said, in the lives of some people, a small group of people. So whom do you encourage in this way and to whom have you given permission to encourage you in this way, ask you significant questions? I think of times when people have done this for me and I, I, I wrote down probably 10 or 15 years ago, there was this section of my life over a period of months or maybe a year where four different people came and confronted me on the same thing. Three were uh, missionaries that I served, and then another was a colleague. And they all basically said, John, you were involved in our lives, you encouraged us here, and then you you dropped us. You forgot about us, and we hadn't heard from you in a year. What happened with that? Why weren't you still in my life? And so it's, again, God pointing that out, but their desire to have someone involved in their lives, and I failed. I failed at that. So God has continued to bring people in my life to help me recognize this tendency toward individualism and that other people need me as well as I need other people. So, so you could probably say, hopefully, hopefully we've lost count of the number of times we've experienced that deep kind of encouragement, maybe even painful encouragement for others. Hopefully it's something you can look back and just think of bunches of times that people have done that for you. But of course, sometimes the reason we don't have it is because we really don't want it. And we give people the signals that we really don't want it. And we're, we're scared of it. We, we avoid it. And we can try to stay aloof from people in our relationships or, or keep conversation very light or in our, in our uh, conversation with people, talk just about ourselves and be full of ourselves. Not allow that person really to enter in. Or, of course, re- if we respond negatively when they do enter in. And as soon as they start saying something difficult, we bash them in the nose. People are only going to get a bloody nose so many times before they're going to quit coming. And so there's ways that we can kind of give people signals that, well, you know, actually I'm pretty happy the way I am. And I really don't need you to be speaking into my life in that way. So oppositely, we need to be giving people signals that we do want it. And one of the main ways is simply ask for it. Brother, sister, I struggle in this area can you pray for me? And I'd really even appreciate it if you'd ask me about it. Or if you see my tendency slipping back over that way, I really would like for you to come and talk to me about it. Giving people direct permission to be involved in our lives this way. We really love our son-in-law, Pete. Um, he's the son-in-law that took our family to China, and they live in Shanghai. But from day one, Pete is just totally inviting others into his life. The first time this happened, he visited us with our daughter, Carissa, in Philadelphia. And then as they were going, I think as soon as they got back, they went to the same college, Longview, I mean, uh, Laterno in Longview, Texas. He broke up with her. So they visit our house, a serious relationship. They get there, and Carissa calls up, and she's crying. Then he calls me and ask advice about whether breaking up with my daughter was a good idea or not. So I'm, this is a weird conversation. He did the same thing with his father, and we both confronted or challenged him in certain ways, and they re uh, pursue the relationship, and they've got three kids now. So but he's always always wanted our input and that's not always common between the parents in law and the son in law but he's always asking us to pray for him in certain areas and one of the th- habits that we because we're, our whole family isn't together that often one of our habits is always to make sure we have a time of prayer where we're really sharing significant things with each other and being vulnerable with our kids and they with us and even this last time they were with us with June um, I mean with us in June and he said, "Hey, you know that thing you asked prayer for a year or two ago? How's that going?" I mean, we'd love having that from somebody quite a bit younger than us, and so God's still putting people into our lives in my life to help me work on this individualism and help me learn about corporate sanctification. So we need to choose settings and relationships where deep, sometimes painful encouragement is a regular practice. And so Dave Pallison writes, we need to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable and change all into Christ-like, into Jesus-likeness. This is the primary means that God's given us to protect us from the deception of sin, from distancing ourselves from God. And it's only pride that keeps us from putting it into practice. Pride that we don't really want to see what's in my own heart. So... Whom have you given permission to do this? Who have you pursued to do this? I mean, even, even, even take a moment right here. You have the luxury after the service of, of having a fellowship time and then Sunday school, you're together for a while. Is there someone this morning that you can step into their life and just say, hey, I want to encourage you in this way or I need to talk to you about this. Can I, Can we talk for a minute? And make this happen. Make this part of who of who you are. <clears throat> So I mentioned our present lives We're part of this city group, this small group. And over four or five years, we've had about 50 different people come through that group. Some were unbelievers from the neighborhood or visited. And some were people who were in our area for a while and left. And the people are black and white and single moms on welfare with lots of kids or a pastor and his wife was there for a while. A couple of young couples headed into missions a neighbor who was an exotic dancer in the past, past, urban hipsters who've moved into our area. They're just getting into their first careers in houses. So it's a, it's a real wide variety. And like I said, it's led by young African-American men. And we spend time talking to each other about one another. But even more so, as I, I was starting to share with you, I want to tell you a bit about my discipleship group. So I'm a discipleship group with three men. Two of them I've been with quite a while. They're both African-American in their 30s. They're both like built. And so I'm like, I'm 20, 25 years older than them. More recently, a young white guy, even younger, has joined us. And so we speak in each other's life. We study the word together. We pray for each other. We keep track of what we're praying for. We have this little group me uh, instant messenger. So we're popping notes to each other all the time. And p- please pray for me, etc. But I, I noticed a real... Uh, turn for the good here recently, um, one time we had the group and only the one African-American guy was there, and I was asking prayer in a certain area that I've been struggling, and he just says, so what's going on in your heart? He's quoting me. What I say would ask him typically. Now, he has the courage to ask this 60-year-old guy, elder in the church, what's happening there? And then another time, the other African-American friend was there, just like a week or two later, did the same thing. Huh, sounds like something's happening in your heart there. We need to talk about that. We need to pray about that. It's like, hold it. I'm I'm ministering to you guys here. (laughs) I'm 60. I don't need... No, it was good. It was really good. And I just remember it it sounded like deja vu or whatever deja vu version of hearing something again of the kinds of things that I've said to them at times. So God continues to work on me. It's never too late to appreciate the corporate part of sanctification. Let me pull it together with three little points, summarize. And the first would be to, to look up to look up and ask God to break any spirit of independence and individualism and pride and autonomy or self-sufficiency that still bedevils us. Ask God, break it. Bring people into my life so that I can't do that. I can't just think, God, it's me and you, we're good. And a vertical relationship sufficient. So uh, look up. Secondly, reach out. Reach out to people and find lives of people to enter. Think about the people who are just naturally in your life. Maybe there are other people that aren't in your life but you could pursue and bring into your circle. Determine to stir up the fire of other souls to pursue God, to pursue Him afresh, to pursue one another, to grow. If we observe a brother or sister who's weak or struggling emotionally or spiritually or however, ask yourself, how can I be part of helping? What can I do? What can I say? Reach out and then invite, finally invite in. Invite in others. Determine to, to find, if you, especially if you don't have three, four, five other people who you know will grab you by the collar when you start w- walking away from God or when you start treating people in a certain way. Invite them in. Ask them to be part of helping you with that. Don't wait for it. Ask for it. Think through what practical steps you can, can take to make sure you have others in your lives, in our lives, doing this, serving us in this way. So look up, reach out, invite in. And so what's the result? Let me just, let me just close with this. <clears throat> what's the result of this community work, this community life Believers with one another in deep ways. You know, it's a reality that the world doesn't know. Grace given to one another at the deepest level. It's a reality that the world doesn't know but secretly craves because they're creating the image of God. So God put into their spiritual DNA a one another, a desire for one another. So even those people that seem the least inclined to one other people in their life, there's something in there still that's saying, no, this is the right way to live life. There's something that that pulls people to want other people to really love them in grace, even if they can't give words to that, they can't articulate that. And herein lies the answer to Charlottesville. Herein lies the answer to Charleston and the Boston Marathon bombing because people left to themselves, especially those who don't know Christ, to a degree, even us, we revert to tribalism. We revert to racism, we revert to me and mine, and we 're the best, and i 'll watch out for my own before i 'll watch out for other people that 's naturally in us that 's where we revert apart from God, me and my group first and we't and, and we, we 've got to realize that we have shards of that tribalism and racism left in our hearts as well, and be ready to deal with, deal with that as we as we can and so as we model a type of relationship that the world doesn't know and hopefully we're in settings where they can see it happen, where they can see your relationship with each other to happen, there's going to be something attractive. Yeah, some will run away and say that's the last thing I want because they're denying what's within them. But there will be some who say, that's something I want. I can't believe they're having that kind of conversation. I can't believe he's forgiven him for that or she's confronted him and it actually worked out well. And so it's going to be one of our greatest apologetics for outreach, for evangelism, will be our deep relationships, our our three-dimensional relationships with each other that, that transcends these tribal barriers that we see all the time. We shouldn't be surprised at Charlottesville. We aren't, are we? We're prone to wonder, even as believers, what more with those who don't know Christ. They revert to racism. It's been there all along. We never as a country have been past that. And in one sense, we never will be past that as a country. And so we have something to offer. We have something to offer in the way that we love one another and the way we love others. And so this deep unity, it can be shocking. It can be even more shocking as it reaches across those tribal and racial and ethnocentric uh, uh, boundaries. And we see deep fellowship among people who are very, very different, who don't normally relate to each other on that way. And those outside, those who don't know Christ in whom God's image and God's spirit is whispering, they'll find that. They'll be drawn to that. They'll be attracted and drawn by a reality that surpasses anything that they experience outside. This is how we address. Just as we stir up the fire in the souls of one another, we can expect others to be drawn to Christ as we do that as well. So encourage one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for putting each other in our lives. Thank you for people who've spoken to me, encouraged me to speak to them, and I pray that will be true of all believers, especially those in this room in this church. And may that testimony be be a warmth, be an attraction, a bright, shocking light to those who don't know you in this community and around, and may they be drawn to that light that they also might experience unity with you and unity with other people. And we pray this for the sake of your glory. Amen.